Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. With us this week, we have Andy. Hello. We have Sue. Hi there. And we have Jara. Hey. And I, of course, am Grace. Now, before we get to our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards, from things on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash women at warp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So daily Star Trek news on the Roddenberry Podcast Network is coming up. That is uh, the new show on the network hosted by Allison Pitt that comes out every day, Monday through Friday. And I believe she keeps it to less than 15 minutes. So you can get all your Star Trek news right as you're starting your day. That's useful. There's a lot of it lately, too. What a time saver. Just in 15 minutes? <laughs> and as you can probably tell, because it's getting hot out and we're getting progressively more excited, Star Trek Las Vegas is coming. It's right around the corner. It's coming. It's coming. We can't avoid it. No, it's out there. It's it's looming large as life, like the moon about to crush a planet beneath it. <laughs> <laughs> is it the moon where we left the Pope? The space Pope? I was thinking Legend of Zelda, spooky looking moon, but I could see a space Pope hanging out on one of those. <laughs> it is the Prophet's ineffable plan. <laughs> well, we gotta respect the Prophets. And we gotta respect heroic programs. Chase Masterson's organization, Pop Culture Hero Co Coalition, is working with Scott Palm, who, you know, has is often appearing with Chase and speaking with Chase at different events to create the Heroic Program, which reaches out to kids with disabilities and their peers with lessons on inclusion, self-worth, and resilience. And they are having a fundraiser right now. And all summer long, the Roddenberry Foundation is matching dollar for dollar with any money donated. So we just want to bring that to your attention. That fundraiser can be found on GoFundMe under Scott Palm, P-A-L-M, Heroic Fundraiser. If that is too difficult to search for, too hard to find, there is a pinned post at the top of the Mission Log Facebook page that has that link in it, and so you can find it on Facebook as well. That's cool. Well, with no further ado, on to our very special topic, because it's time, once again, for a very special episode. <laughs> <laughs> a very special gay episode. Yes, that's what we mean by special. Can I get some, like, <laughs> Lifetime original movie music in the background or something here? I immediately just wanted to do, like, saxophone noses, and I don't think <laughs> that's quite where we're going. If it's a melancholy <laughs> saxophone, then yeah, that works. What's the song where it's like, do-do-do-do, do-do-do? Careless Whisper? <laughs> yeah, that that's immediately what came into my mind. That's, that's too sexy. It's not melancholy enough. <sighs> just make sure we don't get sued. What if we do kind of a <laughs> So it's like soulful but not sexualized. There you go. I yeah. like it. You're welcome. And that's what I got from my music composition class. Not gonna be confused with any actual song, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah it is. I just wrote it. It's a song now. I've birthed it. Right here for all of you. <laughs> and we've also patented it by claiming it right now. So, yep. Don't steal it, nerds. Original <laughs> song, please don't steal. 
So in case you couldn't suss it out, we are talking about, for Pride Month, more LGBTQ-related topics. Today's main topic is queer coding in Star Trek. Now, for those of you who aren't hip to the jive, queer coding occurs when characters or relationships are given traits associated with LGBTQ people without explicitly stating that they are queer. It does not necessarily imply that the character actually is queer. Queer coding can be positive, it can be negative, although it's more commonly negative. Our understanding of these characters as queer is equally related to our learned understanding of queer behavior through the media we've consumed as it is to the creator's intention. Yeah, so like think of this is where a lot of stereotypes come from. It's where a lot of them originate in pop culture, definitely. So if you're thinking about like stereotypical queer traits, this is like little nudge, nudge, wink, winks to the audience that this is a character that is queer, but they never explicitly state that. It's it's supposed to be just like silently understood by the audience, sometimes even subconsciously understood. You can code characters queer through a lot of ways, through the way that they move, through the way that they talk, the way that they dress, the way that they relate to other characters. There's lots of different ways to do it, but it it is an interesting and very vast topic. That I'm excited to talk about. One thing that I thought we should also have you be the one to address is, how is this different from queer baiting? As our okay. resident's queer baiting expert. <laughs> <laughs> so queer baiting is, is a different term where you have a character that's queer coded, but you never allow them to become queer. And it's kind of a way to draw in people like hungry for that representation. And then they will back off it. They won't ever quite go past that like invisible line where there's like no way to just pretend anymore. And it's super frustrating. It this is queer baiting I would say is more popular now or even like the last 10 to 20 years where they wanted queer audiences but they didn't want to go far enough where they would have to stand up for their characters. And, and what are some good examples of this? Oh, you just want me to talk about Dean Winchester and Castiel and Supernatural. I see where you're going with this, Grace. I'm trying not to talk about them too much, <laughs> and you just throw in the red meat out there. You are baiting me. You are queer baiting me on this topic. Right I'm now. baiting you in queer bait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Supernatural is a really good example of this, where this show has gone on for, it's going to be 15 seasons soon. and then Just let them go, guys. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the, the way this show has managed to do this is, like, they built up this huge audience of shipping and, like, queer fans. And then they were like, yeah, but not really. Wink. Wink. And it can get really, really frustrating for people because it's like, we're good enough for... Your, like to, to buy your merchandise and to watch your show and to keep your show alive as a zombie for years and years <laughs> and years. But we're not good enough for you to go like, you know what? It's cool that our main character is clearly queer. And we see this isn't the only franchise where we've seen this happen. We saw it happen in Hercules. We saw it happen with uh, Xena. We saw it a bit of it also with Sherlock with them playing around with the whole like, oh, people think we're gay. Isn't that adorable? But we're not. No homo. Well, and one of the things that the showrunners will do is they'll go after it intentionally. Yeah. They they will create those, like, show previews of, you know, come watch this week's episode where this stuff might happen. 
that sort of thing, and lean into this, like, this queer thing might happen. These two characters might finally kiss. This might get together. And then they back off of it when the actual show airs. So they they rearrange the preview of an episode or of a movie or of any kind of property to get that audience and then back off of it in the actual production. I feel like it's safe to say they did that with some of the later seasons of Buffy also, right? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Star Wars. <coughs> oh, mercy. Yeah. We have opinions. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a very common tactic. Yeah. It was a lot of, this is why I said it was more common like the last 10 to 20 years, is because it was right in the area of time where things were starting to move forward with representation. At a glacial pace. Yeah, but like creators were becoming more comfortable with the idea of queer characters, but say producers or networks weren't. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to walk this line of like kind of giving us these representation, but like not far enough that they'd have to defend it to the network. Yeah, and queer baiting is, is far more recent than queer coding. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And we also uh, need to draw a distinction, I think, between characters that are queer coded and characters that uh, audiences interpret to be queer for absolutely. other reasons. Coding, at least traditionally, implies intent by the creator and plays on like well-known stereotypes. Interpretation is based on what you see in the character, what audiences relate to, that sort of thing. And sometimes that's intended by a creator and sometimes it's not. There's a whole bunch of Star Wars fans that interpret Luke Skywalker as asexual. Is Luke coded asexual? No, because first of all, how would you do that? I I don't think that was an intent of George Lucas in the 70s. Definitely not of George Lucas. Mark Hamill has definitely said that he approves of the idea and welcomes any interpretations of the character. Right, but that doesn't mean that he put that in there. Of course. And that's where that that difference is. More recently, you know, in, in newer media and stuff coming out now, I think it's a lot more nuanced. But in in general, when we're talking about coding, we're talking about something that is put into the property by one of the creators and is meant to fly over the heads of straight audiences and connect with the queer audiences. Or the people who are in the know. Right. If we're talking about stereotypes, this is where, say, a lisp might come in Mm -hmm. or like moving your hands a certain way, these sorts of things, Mm -hmm. um, dressing really over the top and flamboyantly, like these sorts of things are specifically chosen to give the audience like a nudge that this is a queer person whereas interpretations are more like people get invested in these characters and they start putting things into them that might not necessarily truly be there and intent but like they embrace those characters and that's fine too we should be clear both of like it's totally fine if you read something into a character. It, but when we're talking about coding, we're talking about specifically intent by the creators. So mm-hmm. just try not to smoosh them together. So for a little historical background here, let's talk about that incredible burden of Hollywood, the Hayes Code. <laughs> the Hayes Code was put into effect to try and regulate the moral decency of Hollywood and America. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much just absolute bullcrap. Let's just (laughs) 
What a kind way to put it. I'm being very generous. Um, The Hays Code, (laughs) for those of you who aren't all that familiar with it, was the code where you couldn't show actual danger happening to a child. If you had two couples sleeping in bed together, they had to be in separate beds. Or if there was anything romantic happening, they had to have at least one foot touching on the ground. It's full of a bunch of backwards, very odd, arbitrary rules. And they had a lot of opinions on how gay characters and homosexuality were meant to be portrayed in Hollywood because God forbid we don't regulate that. One of the most unfortunate aspects of the Hayes Code was that you could have a character be openly homosexual so long as at the end of the plot that queer character is punished for it, i.e. usually killed or dies horribly. Suddenly Last Summer is a very good example for Tennessee Williams. Um, Suddenly Last Summer is so disturbing. It is on many levels. There's really good coverage of it in uh, 1995's The Celluloid Closet, which is a documentary about early queer coding and queer cinema. Yeah, one of the uh, non-cinema examples that I always like to point to for this is the lesbian pulp novels. Yeah, yeah. Which are amazing, (laughs) by the way. And a lot of them are actually written by queer authors. Yeah. And they're truly, truly amazing, but the only way that they could be published is, like, at the end, everything goes to shit and they die horribly. And this is where Bury Your Gaze, which is another trope that we have discussed in the past, comes in is, like, this idea that if you have a queer-coded person, like, often they will die horribly. Or even just an explicitly queer character. Like, they must be punished for their transgressions against society kind of thing. And this is what led to so many queer-coded characters being villains. Yes. If you're wanting to find some super classic examples of queer coding, especially villains, you cannot get more classic than the Disney villains. Hell no. Hell no. The Disney villains are basically where huge chunks of this, like, history is. Ursula is based on Divine, the drag queen. Mm -hmm. I mean, Scar, really? Jeremy Irons is the campiest campy gay. (laughs) I don't think people were expecting when they did this, especially the straight people, is the way that queer people embraced a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we've got no real role models. This is what we've got to exactly. work with. Like, if we'll you are it. being served crumbs, you will turn them into a feast. <laughs> and so if you want to find a, a, a bigger queer icon than Ursula, good luck. <laughs> I, 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 I wish you luck in that endeavor. Because to, to queer people, they're like, yeah, she is queer. She's ours. And she's fabulous. You know? She is mother. <laughs> the idea with, with making the queer-coded person the villain, making the villain the monster, mm-hmm. is that it's supposed to give the idea of, like, this type of behavior, this type of queerness is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And it's immoral. And it's what bad guys do. Mm-hmm. And it's it's selfish, it can be dangerous, it can be violent. And so just like the movies are trying to teach the audiences, the kids especially when it comes to Disney, that teaches us to be good people, it's also teaching us not to do these things, not to have these characteristics that are associated with queerness. I'm willing to bet, though, that those of us who grew up wanting to be Ariel ended up having to deal with unpacking a lot more stuff than those of us who grew up wanting (laughs) to be Ursula. 
I know. Well, that's that's uh, I think how it backfired, right? Because <laughs> yeah, the the villains in these stories have power, but you know, in our our lives as queer people, we are so rarely in those kinds of positions of power. Mm-hmm. So they've become these queer power fantasies. Yeah, the, we we so rarely have this outlet for the anger that builds up, but we we see. You know, Ursula grow to 500 times her size and start a thunderstorm and shoot lightning out of a trident. And it's amazing. It's pretty freaking fabulous. Plus, like, just compare it to the straight characters for women, especially. Like, Mm -hmm. who is more interesting? Like, if you're looking at the Lion King, there's a heck of a lot of guys you can choose from that aren't Scar. But if you're a woman, you're like, Nala, I guess? I wanted to be the Whoopi Goldberg hyena. (laughs) (laughs) so we are a good ways into this discussion we got a lot to say let's turn it to star trek yeah let's do it i think our our most obvious example of actual queer coding Mm -hmm. is garrick definitely well i can we start with how is he queer coded like if you had to point to like specific intentional ways that they showed us that he was queer He's a man who's into women's fashion, for one thing. Yeah, like, that's the first thing I think of, too, is, like, his job. His job mm-hmm. is not t- super traditionally masculine. I, I, I find I find it very interesting that a spy decided to have his cover be a tailor. Rather than a tinker or a soldier. <laughs> there are a lot of scenes where he's just like, come, look at my fashion. I love what you're wearing. <laughs> We also have that concept of him being a spy introduced, uh, like, in the first scene that we see him. And so it's just kind of like, oh, this is a sneaky, subterfugious kind of character here. What does he really want? Yeah, just that there's something underneath what he's showing everybody else. Yeah, and, like, right off the bat, he's touching Bashir. Oh. Mm -hmm. He doesn't indicate interest in women for quite a ways into the series, and by that time it feels really just like erasure. But... yeah. It like he's like massaging Bashir's shoulders and like just very like attentive to him. And we've got a quote here from Andrew Robinson. Would someone like to read that for us? Sure. It says he's not gay, he's not straight, it's a non issue for him. Basically his sexuality is inclusive. But it's Star Trek and there were a couple things working against that. One is that Americans really are very nervous about sexual ambiguity. Also, this is a family show. They have to keep it on the quote straight and narrow. So then I backed off from it. Originally, in that very first episode, I loved the man's absolute fearlessness about presenting himself to an attractive human being. The fact that the attractive human being is a man, Bashir, doesn't make any difference to him, but that was a little too sophisticated, I think. That said, I think this quote is a little bit dated by this point. Mm-hmm. It, it gives some background to, you know, what he was thinking at the time, but anyone who saw the Deep Space Nine documentary recently that... One of the biggest things going around, I think, that made most fans happy coming out of that was him just being like, yeah, he was totally gay. <laughs> also, that my favorite is that they're like, well, what? so Bashir, and he's like, oh, he wanted to sleep with him. Yeah, that's absolutely. the first thing that we need to discuss is he wanted to, he wanted to sleep with him. I was yeah. like, all I can say to Garrick and to Andrew Robinson for playing him is it came through, bro. It came <laughs> through. Came. And you should be very proud of how much chaotic gay energy you managed to push past all of those prosthetics because I picked up on it <laughs> immediately. Except that a lot of people didn't. 
for some reason. <laughs> but no, seriously, there was well, for for every single like queer person or just person in the know who saw that in the DS9 doc and like punched the air. There was like a straight person who never thought about it before <laughs> who went, "What?" That's part of what I'm loving about us just recording this episode. There's going to be so many things that people just hear and go, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe not in our audience, but in general. I I did a panel on queer coding in Star Trek at, at Northeast TrekCon last fall. And somebody in the audience like was started getting kind of upset and asked a question and was like, I always thought I was a good ally. I try my best. But all the stuff you guys are talking about, I have never seen i never noticed i never thought of this before am i wrong am i doing something wrong should i have known about this and i just want to blanket state no if you're a straight person the point of queer coding is that you don't pick up on it it's for the people in the audience who have this vocabulary who already speak this language so like it's yeah, you're not, it's not for everyone to get. So if you don't notice it, it doesn't make you a bad person, which I, I bring up. This guy was like truly upset. It's okay, friend. <laughs> We're all learning. I mean, and I think like there's the, just to distinguish again, the point that you made, Sue, that like it has kind of changed because that didn't used to be the point of queer coding. The point used to be to like whack it over everybody's heads that this was queer and this was wrong. And now it's like more of a, signal that they aren't really actually willing to back up. And I think that's what was happening with Garrick, where it wasn't meant to be like negative about what it meant to be queer, but it was like, but we also aren't going to put our, you know, reputations behind this. We want to have deniability. That's one reason why I really appreciate Andrew Robinson being like, no, man, you wanted to bang him. Yeah, <laughs> He wrote an entire book about it. Well, we'll get there. But I, I think the point changes based on the time and the piece. Yeah. Because I, I think definitely there are times that they wanted to get across, like, this person is queer and that is bad. Yeah. And there were other times they wanted to just slip jokes in. Mm -hmm. And there were other times they didn't want straight audiences to pick up on it. And it's all based on the, the property and the time period. Oh, yeah. And I would say, like, especially in the time that DS9 was being made, it was just a, let's see who gets this. Yeah. Like, there are certainly moments peppered throughout Star Trek where, like, aliens mistake straight characters for gay or characters mistake aliens for gay and it's like a like a little chuckle moment so there's, <laughs> yeah like so there's still those types of situations but just with garrick it's more of the other i do want to mention the star trek novel that Heck yeah. Andrew robinson wrote about garrick it's called a stitch in time and it's basically garrick writing a letter to bashir Chronicling all of his past loves of all genders. And it's basically him writing out a little black book for Bashir. <laughs> and sort of professing his love as well. It's kind of amazing and you should read it. Yeah. It's so hard to find though. In terms of a hard copy. Yeah. It does have a Kindle ebook. I'm not sure if it has an another type of like an EPUB ebook, but it's definitely available for Kindle. Let's talk about the fact that the character who we, with Deep Space Nine, who we most associate as our queer character here, is also supposed to be the duplicitous spy character. Mm -hmm. And that kind of plays into this idea of, again, queer people being sneaky. We've got Richard Dawkins writing whole 
Hmm. screeds about how genetically gay people have to be sneaky in order to have survived through history. And this idea that pansexual and bisexual people are just naturally duplicitous and tricksy Mm -hmm. and untrustworthy. And that, that is something worth thinking about when we think of this character as an archetype of untrustworthy and as uh, playing into a bunch of these ideas of being queer. Yeah, and I think it kind of ties into the way that the Mirror Universe has been used. Absolutely. <laughs> because yeah. 90% of our bi-pan like, representation is in the Mirror Universe, and it's all about like promiscuity yeah. and mm-hmm. untrustworthiness again. The quote, high-risk lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's super frustrating. I mean, they're doing it even now with Discovery, where we don't know if, if Prime Giorgio is you know, queer in any way, but, like, Mirror Giorgio is. I I I know, but, like, it's so frustrating. Like, the only time we get it is when she's having threesomes. Mm -hmm. And I... And I... I, Do you know how much I want to be excited that Michelle Yeoh is playing a queer character that has threesomes? Like, that... (laughs) I should be excited about that, and I'm not. As should we all. Even later in season two, where we get that scene with her you know, sort of like teasing slash flirting with Stamets and Culber. They they both feel the need to reassert that although they might have been pan or bi in the mirror universe, their prime universe selves are gay. Period. And that's not a bad thing. You don't have to be everything. But by having your prime characters reassert that they are binary, it continues to relegate pansexuality and bisexuality to the mirror universe which is known for being deceitful and sneaky and evil and manipulative she uses her sexuality to manipulate people if they had even just said but we're in a relationship together i think that achieves the same goal Uh without doing that to a whole group of people if that makes sense the mirror universe is also hedonistic Mm-hmm. And very, like, pleasure-focused, which, again, that's not a bad thing, but it also implies that, like, you can't somehow have these, like, have, like, a deep relationship as a pan or a bi person mm-hmm. by that stretch as well, because people in the mirror universe don't have, like, long relationships. They just sleep around. I would like them to stop that. Yeah, so the real rebels in the mirror universe are the people who stick to their... Vanilla monogamous relationships. The, the Jennifer Siscos who are yeah. just there stewing. <laughs> One of the other things in DS9, not just Garrick, uh, a lot of people point to Judzia mm-hmm. for queer representation, and I totally get it. But the I remember before the episode Rejoined aired, and all of the buildup, all of the advertising was about this kiss, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, the kiss happens on screen. It is there. But there's this whole story around it where, you know, the, the, what excuses the, the gay relationship in this episode, if you can allow me to use that word, is that one of them used to be another gender. Uh-huh. So like, really, this is a heterosexual relationship. And like, to me, that's baiting. Like, you baited me in this episode uh-huh. of Star Trek. Sorry about it. And one of the things that Dan Devey says, even though he appreciates this episode and what it did and what it means for people. Dan is the founder of Gaze in Space. He says, I look forward to a time that we don't have to be a metaphor. Because that's that's what happened in that episode. 
but couldn't like could you look at I would say the characters in the outcast are more queer coded than Jadzia. If we're looking at like queer coding as like sending signals about mm-hmm. sexuality, that like in terms of a stereotypical representation, I think part of the problem with Jadzia is that like by this point in our culture that the like first of all our culture has never had as concrete ideas about what lesbian stereotypes were as gay men like at least Mm -hmm. you know going up until the 90s that like there was there were ideas about butchness which i think are represented in the outcast but if you didn't meet that then there was like a degree of confusion or like maybe it was just a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. there definitely are lesbian stereotypes out there but they aren't oh for sure wide and pervasive as the stereotypes of gay men Um, yeah they still mostly relate to butch women and they're not as fixed i think that said, I have known various lesbians who considered Jadzia even pre-rejoin to be kind of kind of a icon for them in terms of her being a proactive woman. Oh, for sure. And there are people I know who just were like, "No, no, she she gives off that lesbian vibe, and I love it." <laughs> I think that kind of runs into our: is she coded that way, or are they just? Claiming her. Or is she just flirtatious? Yeah, I, if we're talking about coding, I feel like Kira is more coded to be queer than mm-hmm. Jadzia is. Even just, if we're talking about haircuts. <laughs> Short hair is queer coding for women. Absolutely. This is where Tasha Yar, I feel like, falls into this as well. Mm-hmm. If you have a woman with short hair or, like, a masculine haircut in any form, that is queer coding. Especially if she has shoulder pads and likes to punch people. (laughs) Exactly. So, like, when you first meet Kira and she's yelling at someone, one of the easiest ways to, like, notice coding is, is your female character asking more traditionally masculine or vice versa? That can be considered coding. Like, stepping out of those stereotypical, like, traits of masculinity or femininity. And Kira does that. She does that from the very beginning. She's extremely aggressive in a lot of ways. She's got short hair. She's wearing a uniform. Like, a lot of that is, is I feel like, queer-coded more than Dax. Well, and you'll notice that right away with both Yar and Kira, they f- tried to feminize them. Exactly. Right, second episode with Yar. Oh, I wish I could wear pretty things. I yeah. want to have a relationship with Data. And Kira's relationship with Burial starts very early on, right? Yeah. This is not Burial yet. It's somebody else. They, they, they went out of their way to show that both Yar and Kira are at least attracted to men quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like they had this character that was a bit queer-coded, a bit different than your typical like feminine character, and they had to immediately be like, but remember... She is a woman, and she does like men. Yeah. And that's what happens with Garrick, too. And to me, that always reads so much of a, don't worry, she's safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Andy, cover your ears. Okay. <laughs> so. Tra-la-la. With the introduction of Torizial later in Deep Space Nine, they were, it, it feels like they're attempting to, like, butch up Garrick. Oh, absolutely. And it's around the same time in the series that the lunches with Bashir also stop. Yeah. So we see him having this this love and developing this crush and whatever relationship they have with, with Zial 
at the same time that he is sort of ignoring who a lot of people paired him with. Because there is so much Garrick Bashir fanfic out there, I can't even tell you. They have chemistry. Well, and then, like, you know, Bashir's hanging out with the man's man, Miles O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, listening to Miles complain about his wife and stuff. But it's like, let's go and play War on the Holodeck. We had to inject heterosexuality. I mean, don't get me wrong. I also like a good, uh, you know, Bashir O'Brien pairing. But yeah. <laughs> well, and they, they give Bashir a relatively stable relationship in the last season as well. Yeah. Yeah. I got, eh. <laughs> it's mad, but I don't hate it. <laughs> I, in some ways, I think Bashir is queer-coded as well, because there it, there is a bit of a stereotype with this guy who calls himself a ladies' man, but <laughs> never gets a date, from what we see always fails at it, as, like, the way to act when closeted, right? Like, this is a thing. He's kind of like that one radio host on Frasier who's just l- always talking about me and my gym buddies are going cruising for women. Right. <laughs> are we are we seeing that with Jordy as well? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Lordy, Jordy just hasn't figured it out yet. I definitely don't think there was intent there, but I, oh, I no. think that there is a bit of a stereotype and certainly like you're going like, oh, God, what are you doing with women? Doesn't <laughs> doesn't mean he'd be better with anyone. <laughs> We know there was definitely initial intent with with Malcolm Reed to begin with, and then they just kind of went, nah. Yeah. Which is a cop-out of the highest order. Them being like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to have a gay character. It's going to be great. Uh, Nope. Well, they never said it publicly, really, as far as I know, that there was just discussions behind the scenes, but it's on, like, the DVD extras, and there's some interviews going around, and... If you uh, look up on our blog, there's a great article about Malcolm Reed, intergalactic hero of confusion or something, Uh and uh, talks all about that, the history of that representation and some, you know, maybe feeling the actor may have not been super, super fond of that, um, but also that, you know, despite it being 2001, apparently the, the show wasn't ready for that or something. And so then, you know, you have him and Trip stuck in a shuttle talking about and like him just like getting drunk and fantasizing about Paul's bum mm-hmm. <sighs> and awkwardly trying to pick up aliens by getting them to smell cheese and <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek has a really weird and complicated relationship with cheese doesn't it yeah Jerry you and I have watched Cogenitor too many times recently yes <laughs> watched it more than once which is too many already <laughs> And we're talking about men. I don't think you can get much more queer coded than Q. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope. He he's super dramatic. He loves costumes. He wears a dress a couple times. He dances a lot. Mm-hmm. He's basically got the whole Disney villain thing going on. Yes. He shows up in Picard's bed. Uh-huh. Picard doesn't ever actually reject him though. He falls out of the sky basically naked at Picard's feet. Yep. <laughs> That's not a come on. I don't know what is. <laughs> and I've uh, I've always thought that it was kind of interesting that the more, I guess, backstory we got and, like, the more he was used, the less queer he was quoted. So, like, yeah. he starts having his thing with Bash, whatever. I guess yeah. he shows up in Voyager. I don't want to know yeah. about it. <laughs> but, like, it, it feels like 
from where he started, they probably didn't intend to use him that much, and so it was more okay. And then as they used him over and over again, he became such a important character, they kind of backed off on some of that. Which seems to be a theme here. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was also just and uh sorry, Andy, uh close your ears for two more seconds, but it may also just that they couldn't figure out how to get Q to relate to Janeway without making it romantic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um because Q still seems to like that you know, kind of treat the idea of sex and as distasteful throughout the that whole arc. And he certainly doesn't like parenting. But, uh, which, of course, that has nothing to do with your your sexual orientation, but he's, like, you know, like, he maintains these these characteristics about just being very, like, aloof, loving costumes, loving drama, <laughs> loving historical reenactments. Comparing every other human against the card. He's, like, the dean on community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was, like, they couldn't fit him into Voyager without being, like, oh, how would, what would, you know, like, he's... He's showing up in Picard's bed. Cisco punches him. What would Janeway do? I don't know. Let's let's see what how would happen if like he wants to get in bed with her. The when I was first time trekking TNG, I really could not believe it. I was like, really? He's he's falling from the sky. <laughs> yeah, at Picard's feet. He's trying to set set him up with Vash and dressing up in a like nefarious Sheriff of Nottingham costume. <laughs> Does this excite you, Picard? <laughs> I love Q. <laughs> and his predecessor, Trelane, they basically dress like Liberace. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Trelane is the po- proto-Q is definitely the most queer-coded TOS uh-huh. villain. For sure. He's got a phaser candelabra. He's, he's so, like, <laughs> frivolous and just wants to, like, party and play his music and have people be his guests. And, yeah, it's very... Party at Vincent Price's house. Very stereotypical. <laughs> I did want to throw in the Borg Queen briefly <laughs> as another example of queer-coded villain. Butch woman, flat top haircut. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, she's got... Certainly in First Contact, I wouldn't call her queer-coded, but in Voyager, she definitely seems more interested in the women characters. And is that, like, a problematic example of of queer-coding villains, or...? In in queer media, you see this really intensive, repeating trope of lesbianism in particular portrayed as something that, like an older woman kind of seduces a young waif into or is like taking advantage of her and seduces her into lesbianism. That's a trope that pops up a lot. Come join my collective. <laughs> okay. Sounds good to me. I'm serious. Look into look into lesbian <laughs> media and you will see that happen an uncomfortable amount of time. Like, oh no, you've been seduced by this scary butch woman. Well, I think that's true in a lot of queer media in general because there's like this idea of a mixture of mentoring and then like someone who like ushers in your sexuality. Like even Call Me By Your Name is an example of that, I think. That age gap though. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, sometimes those age gaps aren't healthy, but you can kind of see like if you're alone and you're not and you're not sure of yourself, how an older, more experienced person can kind of like almost guide you Mm -hmm. Uh, and that can be either healthy or unhealthy i think 
Uh, it's certainly a vulnerable position. Yeah, absolutely. This is seen as predatory, definitely, though. Yes. And you do definitely get this concept of the predatory lesbian a lot. Let's talk a little bit about Spock and Data. Let's. Because there are a lot of people who consider them to be possible representation for asexuality. And I'm not... I feel like this is a a more nuanced topic. And... I just want to know what y'all think of that. Because to me, bear in mind, I'm always okay if you want to claim someone for your community. That's always cool with me. But I worry a little bit that we try and read people who are supposedly emotionless as asexual. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. that's not how asexual people are. That's not what asexuality means. So, correct. Yeah, like I, I just—I <laughs> guess I just want to open the conversation to that because yeah. there's always been a part of me that's uncomfortable with the idea of well, Data is asexual because he doesn't feel feelings. Um, no, Se- uh, sexual attraction and feelings though don't necessarily go exactly, ahead. and yeah. I feel like people are conflating the two in some ways. So, in in a Twitter thread, somebody brought up the idea of data being coded as asexual because coding sort of relies on stereotypes i am not sure how that's even possible like i sort of said at the beginning with luke skywalker like i don't know how you intentionally code him as ace like during the 70s if anything the one stereotype that that the ace community does have is that we are emotionless which is false and and since this is a a more misunderstood i think sexuality i will just state you know all asexuality means is that you don't experience sexual attraction the the concept of that person is someone i want to have sex with like it does not exist in my brain you can still be romantically attracted to someone you can still be aesthetically attracted to someone you can still have sexual desire like you can still want to have sex but just not with a specific person sort of like being hungry but not wanting to eat anything that's in your fridge people relate sex to food a lot in discussions okay (laughs) you're just keeping that ball rolling but i mean i've been having this conversation on facebook for like the last day or two and so many people have have talked about food that, mm-hmm. That's the easiest way to, to sort of convey that. But, like, I, I think there is a lot to, to relate to for with Data in the ace community. The couple times we see him in what we can call a relationship, if you include Tasha Yar, you know, it's been the intimacy has sort of been initiated by the other person. And he seems to be trying to, like, do whatever he has to because he wants to please his partner. And be more human because, yes. like, the way that what it meant to be human at that time was, like, that was considered such an important part. Yeah. But, you know, that is certainly one way for an asexual person to be in a relationship. There are plenty of ace people who who are and, you know, engage in sexual acts because their partner wants to and it's consensual. But it's, you know, something that they wouldn't do otherwise. 
There are lots of other ways for ace people to be in relationships because we're not a monolith. But like the, the most harmful thing that comes from this type of representation is the, the, the stereotype of not having emotions, of being cold and distant. And the, the most harmful, sorry y'all, the most harmful like current example I can think of is Sheldon Cooper. Um. <laughs> like to the point that when they put Sheldon in a relationship, I haven't watched the show for several years because it made me so mad. Uh, to the point that they put Sheldon in a relationship, his partner did not respect his boundaries. And there is an episode in which she fakes being sick so that he'll continue to like rub vapor rub on her chest mm. and basically tricking him into intimacy. And then, you know, gross to begin with when he figures it out, he's like, well, you deserve a spanking. And like, it's, it's supposed to obviously be a joke, but it's very clear that like she's enjoying it while mm-hmm. he's upset about something and basically manipulating this person into not sexual relationships, but, but intimacy, which would likely not be consensual otherwise. So it's, it's certainly difficult and harmful when you, your only characters who you might think of as ace are ones that I are, are emotionally stunted, I guess, are ones who, who also have traits where their emotions are not there at all, or they're suppressed with Spock, or, you know, the character is just weird in the case of Sheldon. I know, I guess Jughead was supposed to be Ace on Riverdale until they changed it, but I didn't watch that show. They kept it in the com, in some of the comics at least. But yeah, it's, it's difficult when, when it's not there and, and your stereotypes are like just really about your lack of being able to, to engage in, in a relationship in any way. Is it fair to say that this is commonly treated as something that needs to be in the character's arc or story be fixed? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A huge thing in, in the ace community is feeling broken. And when you realize you're not, but you're experiencing everyone else around you is talking about like, I feel this way and I feel that way and I can't wait to do that. And the, the human response to that is, why don't I experience these things? What's wrong with me? The answer is nothing is wrong with you, but that, that, feeling and that self-doubt is certainly still there we we do see spock and data as you know complete characters otherwise so there's there's something positive there but the the frustrating thing for me as an individual is like every story out there in the world has to have a love story in it every movie has a love story so the the narrative that all of our media pushes on us is that a person is not complete when they're not in a relationship. And for me personally, I think that is the more frustrating thing than the, the ace stereotypes. But I have also like never really given a crap about being in a relationship. Is there a character that you think has from the wider world of media, even that you feel like has been done well for representation? There haven't been, at least that I'm familiar with, a lot of 
pieces of media that focus on ace people. Yeah. I was going to say that the closest that I've seen recently was a Netflix show called Sex Education. Oh, yeah. And they kind of dropped the ball at the end. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, I don't think it was t- intended to be baity, but it kind of yeah. was because throughout probably at least half of the show, I was starting to get really excited. I was like, I feel like I'm finally seeing an asexual character being well portrayed. And it's not so much that they um, ruined that. It's just it turned out to be a different story than I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. So I would still recommend that show. But I went online afterwards because I was like, I can't be the only one who's like really struggling with this portrayal. And the ace community seemed to be really divided on it as well. But for the first time, I felt like I might actually be seeing it. So there was good things there. Word. I just feel like this particular aspect of queerness is not really understood. So, like, people mess up when they're trying Mm -hmm. to portray it because they don't actually understand it. I don't know that they try that much. I think that it's sort of where it was, where it was like, well, like, you you know, there may be characters that could be read as ace because we haven't seen them explore a relationship, but you know that, like, the creators and most of the people out there and probably the actor are assuming that they have sexual attraction. Yeah, this is why I was so disappointed by this 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 character in sex education because that whole show is about this. It's mm-hmm. about sexual attraction. And so I think they got closer than I've ever seen before because there was some intent there. And there was at least some understanding of what these different kinds of attractions mean that I haven't seen explored in other places. Yeah, I really like the the interpretation of Luke Skywalker as asexual. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no particular reason for it other than he practically makes it through three movies. You know, we're talking about the original trilogy here without his story arc really being, I'll say it, distracted by a love story. Yeah. He's got stuff to do and that's not one of those things. And that I that feels the truest to me, at least that I've seen in in TV and film. There is a a really good book by Shonda McGuire called Every Heart a Doorway, which they are turning into, I believe, a sci-fi TV series where the main character of the first book is Ace, and it's brought up sparingly, and just mostly in like her relationship to one of the other kids at the school. There's also good trans representation in that book. Yes, for sure. And so the whole series is great, but I, that character, Nancy, is only in the first book. I want to kind of talk about, because you brought up Luke Skywalker and you kind of like claiming him, I guess you could call it. And yeah, for sure. We've been talking about coding, but I do want to talk about claiming a little bit. Yeah, so like, let's do it. Claiming to me, and I don't even think this is a real term. This is what I'm just calling it. Claiming to me is when you relate to a character and so you basically decide this character is this because it feels right to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the more common way that people relate to this particular yep. topic now than they do to coding. Because mm-hmm. if we're talking about, say, me, there's nothing about me while walking down the street that you're going to look at and go, ah, yes, bisexual. Unless I'm, I'm suddenly dual-wielding that particular day. <laughs> so there's not anything about me that is coded queer, but I am queer. So 
for me, when I start to claim characters, I claim them because like they speak to me in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I claimed Bashir very early. I was like, this here is a bisexual and he's mine. You know it's what I mean? boy! <laughs> exactly. And if you actually asked me to sit down and explain step by step why Bashir is bisexual, I mean, I could do it. I have some slides. But mostly it's a feeling. And I've done that for a lot of characters because uh, although I will say that I think bisexual characters have come a long, 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 long way. And especially after hearing Sue talk about your struggle with the ace representation, I feel particularly lucky because there are great canon explicitly bisexual characters in media right now. Rosa Diaz from Brooklyn 99 is a great example. Eleanor Shellstrop from The Good Place is a chaotic disaster bisexual that I love with my whole heart. <laughs> but it's still something that we're looking for and isn't complete. So like claiming these characters that have never been like explicitly made queer is important to me, I guess. And a lot of people when I ask them who are the queer characters in Trek came up with lots of different answers. Riker is Pan. Kirk is Pan. You know, like, all of these characters that that were claimed, you know, in some way. Or, like, read in some way as queer and then, like, beloved for that. Mm-hmm. Or just speak to a certain community. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's powerful and I like it and I will continue to do it and no one can stop me. So, um, <laughs> I have a deep love for this concept. Uh, one of my favorite people on the face of the entire planet post transition identifies with Frankenstein's monster very heavily, <laughs> just in the I am self made sense. <laughs> it feels sometimes to me that Luxana Troy was sort of intended to be a 24th century gay icon. Yes. Because <laughs> she's basically a drag queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have we ever met a gay Trekkie who didn't love Luxwana Troy, though? <laughs> I'm sure they're out there, but like... In- numerically, like, in terms of statistics, probably, <laughs> but I haven't met any of them. <laughs> if we're talking about why people kind of claim people as queer icons, there's usually one of two reasons. One is they are struggling in a way that you relate to them. Mm-hmm. And the other is they are living their life without fear. And mm-hmm. you want that. So for me, Luxana Troy is a good example of she does what she wants and she is who she is and she is not quiet about it in any way. And I think that a lot of queer people wish that they had that courage or don't feel like they can do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they relate to her and kind of claim her. It gets into a lot of personal emotional stuff. Well, to be fair, representation is a very personal matter. It's hard not to take it personally. Yep. And what I can say, too, is if you are interested in exploring various characters and their queerness, and canon has not done well by you, fanfic. Fanfic is the way. (laughs) And I know, like, Garishir, fanfic is, after Kirk and Spock, probably the most heavily written about on AO3. So, like, that's your if that's your ship. If that's your ship, you've got a hearty crew to sail with. Exactly. That's not a rare pair by any, any definition. <laughs> so, there, and this is one reason why I love fanfic so much. I mean, you've heard it here from us that representation and poor representation and bad representation and all of those things, like, can be very hurtful. It can influence how you feel about yourself and make things more difficult 
It is hard to overstate the importance of there being thousands and thousands and thousands of healthy, loving, happily queer couples living out their lives in fanfic. And individuals. Yes, true. Just Mm -hmm. frolicking in the fanfic fields. In the ether of our minds and hearts. Exactly. So, I mean, obviously... It can vary in quality, but... But so does all media. Yeah, there's something to be said (laughs) for this free representation that you can always take a look at. I know it's really helped me. But I think understanding this history helps people understand why the Stamets-Culber thing was such a big deal for so many people in the queer community. You know, we finally have this relationship with these two characters who aren't coded, they are explicitly gay and they are in a relationship and one of them is killed. And like, it still hurts like that. That scene is still in, you know, previously on and it's, it's like a continued trauma almost. But there is a lot of good there too. And I really appreciate, especially since now we have Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp, and they're very vocal, and they're very proud, and it's lovely to have them in our community. And I think this, all of this that we're talking about, I think it can only get better. Yeah, I just hope that they are a a happy couple living their lives. That would be lovely. Just let them be happy, god damn it. (laughs) You know, I mean, I've said this before, but it, it really does get to a point where the most almost transgressive you can get is letting a queer couple be happy because it's so rare. And in the words of Dorothy Parker, sometimes the best revenge is good living. Yeah, like we don't get it very often and it's it's nice to see when it happens. And yeah, that doesn't mean that they can't have conflict or struggles or anything like that. but. Heck no. It would sure be lovely. And also, can we talk about the fact that now we have Jet Reno, who I would kill for? Oh, Tig. (laughs) Jet Reno. It's getting better. It's getting better. Slowly and surely and painfully, but we're getting there. And we will claw our way up that rock face until we are at the top. (laughs) I just hope for a Star Trek in which, which we kind of have now, characters are no longer queer coded, but are just queer. That would be so nice. I wish that for all media. Indeed. And if you have opinions about media, as we very <laughs> clearly do, you can contact our show at email at crew at women at warp.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at women at warp. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. That was a subtle segue, wasn't it, guys? Good job. Very pro. Super great. Yeah. And where can people tell you how good my segue was, Andy? You can find me online (laughs) on Twitter at First Time Trek. I am always around to talk about mostly dual wielding. And what about you, Sue? You can tweet me your favorite ace characters at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And what about you, Jara? You can send me all your Garrick gifs at Jarrah Penguin on Twitter. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. Or you can find me on TrekkieFeminist.com. And I'm Grace. You can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. And remember, I'm extra powerful during Pride Month. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening.